I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Well, hello, Molly Shannon. Hello, Oprah. So great to see you and welcome to Super Soul. Congratulations on the success of your book. You know, I've never read a memoir like this. I've read lots and lots of memoirs, lots of books, but you have a life uniquely your own and you tell the story so beautifully. I really enjoyed it. And I saw this morning that a lot of other people are obviously enjoying it because it's number two on the New York Times bestseller list. How does that feel? It feels fantastic, Oprah. I I really, you know, before I'd heard about that, I really didn't look at how it was selling or anything. I thought, you know what, whoever needs to read it will read it. I don't want to worry about that. Um, it felt vulnerable to share my story. So I just realized, you know, you can't control that kind of stuff. But I was absolutely thrilled to hear that people were responding to it and that it's number two New York Times bestseller. I couldn't believe it. I, 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 I was overjoyed. Well, congratulations. That is quite a feat. It means that people see themselves in your story or certainly have enough empathy and connection to your story to to want to dive in. Uh, you, you know, I've interviewed so many writers of memoirs, and I know that it can be challenging for a lot of people to revisit the pain of an extremely difficult and, and, and in your case, disrupted childhood. What has the experience of sharing your story been like for you? I wondered after a while, is telling the same stories, is it triggering or is it healing? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Writing the accident chapter was really hard. I I felt like I held my breath when I was writing it. And then I took a deep exhale when I finished writing it. Like I said, over, okay, let's move on. And I also wanted to get everything correct. I wanted to lay it out as well as I remember it. And it almost felt like surgery, like very precise. But one of the things people would ask me, oh, is this cathartic? And I'm thinking, no, it's not cathartic. Like I feel like I've already processed that stuff in therapy. But then strangely enough, a few months ago when I was finishing up the book, just one day I just Googled, you know, the the night of the accident, I Googled my cousin's address in Mansfield, Ohio, and the where the accident took place, and then our home address. And I, I discovered that my dad had driven for 90 minutes, and we were 18 minutes from home, mm. which was really heartbreaking to think about, you know, that he had driven, and we were almost home, and then we're on over there on, like, Dead Man's Curve, and uh, that was really sad. And I thought, it's an interesting thing about trauma that, for whatever reason, you know, I haven't thought I, I didn't do that for 50 years. And then okay. one day I just decided to Google it, map yeah. quest it. Yeah. And the fact that you live in a world where you can Google it now and mm-hmm. 20 years ago you did not. But what's so interesting about what you're saying to me is that as you continue to process trauma, it's always it's always there. It just means you handle it differently or respond differently. But what happened is you Googled and then you had never thought of it that way before. Because when I read in the book that you already traveled 90 minutes and it was like a two hour drive, I was like, wow. 
it's interesting because as you were approaching home, most people feel like, okay, everything's okay now because we're, we're almost home. I think there may be still a few people who don't even know what we're talking about with your life. Mm -hmm. So I just want to go over the fact that when you were four years old, for everyone listening, uh, your father was driving your family home from a graduation party when the car crashed into a pole and your mother and your little sister and your cousin were all killed almost instantly. And your father was severely injured and he'd been drinking earlier that day and may have also fallen asleep. Do you, would, you, would you ever know if he'd fallen asleep, right? You just don't know. And my sister survived too, my six-year-old sister, Mary. I was going to say, and your six-year-old sister, Mary, survived. Mm-hmm. And that one single moment set in motion, actually, you can see from your memoir that that set in motion the entire trajectory that has now become your life. Mm-hmm. How, how, how would you say that loss shaped you? It gives you this, Oprah, when you lose your parent at a young age, um, losing a parent at any age is really hard, but losing my mom at four, I felt like life as I knew it changed in one split second. And I'll never think of life the same. I guess I just have this like appreciation for life and being alive. I don't take it for granted. So I have a very different kind of, you know, uh, uh, philosophy. I have kind of an urgency for like, this is it. You're up to bat, you know, and you're alive, like you survived. Mm. And so it just gives you a very different perspective. I, I just don't take it for granted at all. Well, after you all recovered from the accident, you and your sister lived with your father until you left for college. It was really just the three of you against the world. And I thought it was interesting, a term you and your sister made up about other little girls. Explain what a hot cocoa girl is. Oh, hot cocoa girl is like a girl who has a mommy and a daddy and things are pretty easy and they can just take it for granted that they're taken care of and they have both parents. And, you know, they were kind of like girls who were just like, you know, they might get cold, like in a restaurant, like, oh, I need like a shawl or like something warm to warm me up. Or if they have like a, like a small tea trauma kind of thing, they're like, oh my God, you know, if it's like my grandfather died, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to minimize that, but I'm saying it might be like, they might make such a, you know, big deal about it. So I guess those types of girls kind of bothered my sister and I because we felt like oh they get to take that all for granted and they can need people I think for me when I was little it felt embarrassing to be needy people have different reactions to losing a parent at a young age some maybe stay in that childlike state of like I want my mommy and I'm mad my my reaction was like I don't need anybody and I can take care of myself and I don't want to feel vulnerable and that feels embarrassing so I guess like when I saw like girls dating or whatever, and they could just put rest their head on their boyfriend's shoulder. I just was like, wow, what is that? I don't, it was like a foreign concept to me, like to be that needy. (laughs) It's so interesting because, you know, I have a girl's school in South Africa Mm -hmm. and um, the year I opened the school was the darkest time for AIDS. Like one out of four people had AIDS in the country at the time. And there wasn't a week that went by when someone wasn't called out of class to be told that they had lost had lost a parent. And so, so many of my girls come from this sense of uh, abandonment um, and not understanding why or how, because, you know, at the time and even still now, people don't talk about AIDS. It was like shushed and 
you pretended that the person died of something else. And what's interesting is all those girls who experienced that went through some form of abandonment one way or another. Once a year I go over to teach and I was saying, it shows up in different ways. Either Mm -hmm. you end up being this clingy, clingy, clingy kind of girl Mm -hmm. when you lose someone you love early, or you end up being the kind of person who pushes people away. And you Mm -hmm. were the pushes people away and also Mm -hmm. acted out uh, towards your female teachers because you wanted to push them away. You write that. Mm -hmm. I did. I was afraid that I felt defective after my mom died. I was four. You can't make sense of it. So the only way for me to make sense of it was I must be bad. My mother must have left with my baby sister because I'm bad and there's something wrong with me. So how you process it, death of a parent at age four versus seven is very different developmentally. So I just, I didn't want to get close to female teachers because I thought, well, if I get close, I'm going to disappoint them. So I'll be bad first. So at least I'm in charge. So I'm not going to get close. I'll just be bad. That way I won't, you know, set myself up to get abandoned. I'll just, I'll leave you first. Yes. And it's so interesting because you were told, like so many other kids are told, you know, your mommy's in heaven. Okay. And so if you don't even understand, because who has a concept of what heaven is at four, And if you don't even understand what that is and you're being told your mommy is in heaven, so why can't we call her? Why can't we reach her, right? That was my reaction. I just thought they tried to package it like it was good news. We were raised Catholics. They said, no, she's in heaven. You know, she's in heaven. And I said, well, could we get there? Could we, could we, could we, I just couldn't accept it. I said, could we take a hot air balloon or could we fly there or could we go up into the clouds? And, and they said, no, no, you know, but I, I really couldn't accept it. So then I just went into a fantasy waiting and kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe she'll be back at the house and she'll be alive or she'll be around that corner or that (laughs) corner or that corner. And uh, I mean, it's, it's very sad. And then that fantasy was punctured when I was in fifth grade and a boy sent me a mean note in school and he wrote, ha ha, your mom's dead. Is that Billy Fox, right? Yes. And I cried and cried. And, and I, I, I had a feeling like, I felt so defensive. Like I have a mother. Like, well, well, let's go back to that moment yeah. because it, it it seemed from uh, your writing that you obviously you hadn't processed it. You hadn't been to therapy. There wasn't, you know, there, people aren't talking about it in a meaningful way that would help a little girl and her sister mm-hmm. uh, get through it. And so you sort of repressed it. And now you're in the fifth grade, I think it was, when, mm-hmm. when Billy yeah. Fox shows up and says, did, didn't he pass you a note saying your mother is dead? Yeah, he passed me a note. And What I, a mean, 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 mean thing. No wonder Patrick wanted to kick his ass. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was so mean. And the kids were so sweet. They all rallied around me and they were like, that's so mean. And Right. Patrick was like, I'll kick your ass. How dare you do that to Molly? Patrick, your friend. But you had a breakdown. But my point being, you had been going along and doing the thing that looks like you're fine on the outside. Mm -hmm. This kid passes you a note saying, well, your mom's really dead. You don't have a mother. And you break down in class. I broke down in class. And then they saw that I was kind of weak and and I realized I'm much more vulnerable than I'm letting on. And it felt, it felt, and then my dad said, Oh, I heard about what happened in school. Do you want to talk about it? And I, I felt embarrassed. Like, no, I'm fine. Yeah. It made me realize that I, 
that really there was a lot of stuff going on inside about that. And I was going to say one more thing too, that was so sweet was when we were kids, you know, I was devastated. I was heavily grieving my mom and my sister when I was four. So sad. We went to go live with my aunt and we would learn how to tie our shoes. And I would go, oh, I wish Katie was alive. She would love learning how to make the bunny rabbits. And mm-hmm. this is not fair. Katie, Everything your sister who was three. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. three. And then, you know, but nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to say anything to us girls. They were like, oh, that might make them too sad. Don't bring it up. But then when we went to church to St. Dominic's one day, when we moved back to our old neighborhood, a, a priest came up to me, Father Murray, and he knelt down and acknowledged our loss. And he held my hands and he had an Irish brogue and he goes, Molly, it's very sad. You lost your mother and your sister. This is very sad now. You're going to have to, you know, he just acknowledged the loss. And I was so grateful for this, this priest. It made me feel so seen and understood. And I'll, I'll never forget it. You know, it's so interesting because uh, Viola Davis in her memoir, Finding Me, talks about also a teacher who had done that for her. Like when you are in a vulnerable space where you feel unseen and like so much of what's going on doesn't matter to other people, to have an adult affirm you that way can really be the thing that allows you to hold on to yourself. Exactly. And it could just, it's just one person and I'll never forget it. I loved him for it. That's, That's why every person is so important. So you got saved, really. You know, I believe that um, when people who love you pass, that the spirit of them is with you in a way that it actually can't even be with you in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And that we are all protected by family and ancestors who've gone on before us. I feel that very much and very deeply in my own life and felt it so strongly after Maya passed. Uh, it takes some growing into yourself to get to that. But I think when I, you know, finished your book, I think that your mother, your sister, your family that had passed led you to your friend, Anne, really, because she became the spiritual force in your life. You, you, you met her when you were five and Anne Raff reminded me so much of, you know, my relationship with Gail and having someone who is, Anne is your spiritual partner in life. She's your ride or die. How, how did she help you heal even at that young age? That's so sweet, Oprah. Thank you. It makes me emotional. I actually just saw her in Cleveland and, you know, she has not, she's a real survivor herself, but I think she helped me because she was very maternal and she was younger than me too. She was two years younger than me. But when I would get in an argument with my dad or whatever, he would pick a fight, I would be upset. And I wanted to write about a complicated relationship that I had with my father too. I deeply loved him, but it was complicated. He would sometimes act out or get jealous, you know, if I went off to play with Anne and he would pick a fight with me. And so by the time I would go play with her, I would be so sad. I'd be like, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. She was like, it's okay, Molly. She would have to sit with me for about an hour and just listen to my feelings, almost like a therapist or like a mom. I know. And she was like, it's okay. I understand. And I, would- I was so moved by that with you as little girls. I mean, I'm, yeah, we're going to talk about and, uh, your, your dad. What a complicated relationship that was because <laughs> your dad obviously is going through his thing and yeah. going through his thing, uh, 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 his feelings of loss and also I'm sure guilt and mm-hmm so many emotions and yet jealous 
of your relationship with this newfound friend where you would think that he would just be happy that you'd found somebody. Yeah, he was that too, because he was also, my Anne loves my father to this day. He would defend her like a father, like he always defending her, like something happened to her in high school and he called this boy, how dare you do that? Yeah, I'm a lawyer. And, you know, so she loved my father, almost like a father. But then, yes, he would get jealous because he kind of wanted me for himself. And, you know, he wasn't dealing with his own sexuality. So he was, I was like his confidant. So, so it was complicated, but Anne did a also truly love my father and he was protective of her and um it was just complicated i guess yeah i have to say this book feels like a complicated love letter to your dad Mm -hmm. and so many people write about the parent they didn't have but you really honor your father in such a way in an honest and and beautiful way uh he had to raise you and marry all by himself uh, at a time where that wasn't quote, normal for men. And you write that he had a terrible temper, struggled with alcohol. And yet at the same time, he was also your biggest cheerleader and still confidence in you. I mean, to the point of, you know, doing some crazy things and (laughs) helping y'all steal and cheat. And, you know, (laughs) and that time you and Ann got on the plane and flew to, that is an unbelievable story. Isn't it crazy, Oprah? He he was like, Ann Rand reminded me when we were just in, Cleveland. She said, do you remember that day my mom and your dad were sitting on the porch having a glass of wine? And he was like, you know, it would be the greatest stunt if you hopped a plane. That would get you on the cover of the papers. He liked like, you know. Yes. um, And then you did it. And then you did it. We did it. We did it. He dared us. How old were you guys? I wasn't sure how old you were in that. I was, uh, we were, Anne was 11 and I was 13. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. But you got yourself on an airline by saying, oh, can we just go say goodbye to our sister? And then you mm-hmm. hid in the back and then you ended up in a completely different city. And I, what I love is the, is the face of the flight attendant when she realizes <laughs> that she'd let you all on the plane and you're still on the plane and now you've taken off. So she's just like, I don't want to get fired. I'm just going to let you stay on here. She looked petrified. She came to take our drink order and she was like, can I get you lady something to drink? It looked like she was going to. <laughs> And then we thought when we got off that she was going to bust us, but she just said, bye ladies, have a nice trip. (laughs) And then we were like, we're in New York city. And we, we just, we were sprinting around in our tutus and our pink ballerina outfits. And we, we've just, and then my dad, when we told my dad, he, he, he was said, well, he couldn't be mad because he'd given us permission, but he said, why don't you try to stay in the hotel and Mary and I will drive and meet you. But no hotel wanted to take us because they didn't, he, he thought, well, can't. And we you're still in your tutus, right? Were you guys yeah, still, still in your tutus? Yeah, we were still in our tutus. Prima ballerina outfits. We were two little con artists on a crime spree in New York City, stealing I Love New York t-shirts, dining and dashing. Um, but anyhow, then he said, all right, it's not going to work for you to stay in a hotel. They're not, no, the hotels aren't going to let you wait in the lobby till we get there. So why don't you come, come back home and you got to hop on a plane back home. I'm not going to pay for it. Wow. <laughs> but in the end, you know, I think your father being so open and not requiring you to have to be ladylike or requiring you to follow the rules is what allowed you to be who you are. Were you aware at the time that most young women didn't have that? 
I wasn't really aware of that Oprah till years later when I met this, uh, like a, I worked at Cravings Restaurant on Sunset Boulevard and I was doing my comedy show, The Robin Molly Show. And in that show, I did my character Sally O'Malley and she would hike up her red pants and it, people really liked it. And I invited her to the show and she was an Irish Catholic mother of five. And then she came back into the restaurant after she'd seen my show. I said, what'd you think of my show? And she said, oh, I thought that was, yeah, character Sally O'Malley was bawdy and disgusting. And I said, really? Well, I, 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 I thought to myself, I'm so glad I didn't have some, a mother like you. Like it, w it really would have inhibited my comedy because my dad was proud of me. And he's like, that's my Molly, you know, like anything goes. So, um, yeah, he didn't mind that, any of that. You know, the word that kept springing to my mind when I was, I was like, whoa, this, this, this actually defines, you are a woman who defines resilience. You and I know that becoming a successful, anything successful actor, successful comedian is a tough climb. Uh, and is really not for the faint of heart, all the rejection you have to uh, endure. How do you think your life story actually prepared you for show business? I think that that tough, um, the, the thing that happened in the beginning was really hard. And even after I got Saturday Night Live, Oprah, I was still afraid to hang anything up in my office because I thought, oh, it might, you know, there might be disaster around the corner everything might blow up in a moment's notice. I, I, I had to really work hard in therapy to kind of just take a deep breath. Maybe it can keep going okay and everything's not going to blow up. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't you think that having, you know, everything being normal, coming home, and then your life blows up because you're a mother. So you would always not trust whenever there's a good situation. You're like, I know there's going to be something bad coming around the corner. That's right. Exactly. Yes. That's what yes, that's, your, your brain is trained to feel that way, to think that yeah, way. Exactly. That's, that's it. And I also felt like I didn't really want people to come see me perform. It was fine if it was strangers, but if it was somebody I knew, I had a fear of disappointing them. Like, oh, they're going to be disappointed and want to leave. So I think that type of thing gives you this drive to keep, you know, wanting to do better. I think the early childhood hard stuff gave me a certain bounceability in showbiz where I was like, this rejection is hard, but it's not as bad as when I was little. And then I think also I was driven to achieve, to work, to make it, you know, striving, driven because I, w I was trying to get somewhere. And then when I finally got the most famous on SNL and people are coming up to me, recognizing me, I would turn a compliment south. Like they would go, oh, I love, you know, Mary Catherine Gallagher. And I, I would find something wrong with it. And I realized I had this like anxiousness, this like sad feeling. And I, I realized that I really just wanted my mom to tell me I was good. I was, I had been striving all those years trying to achieve mm -hmm. and really it was just my mom who I wanted. Yes. And I actually got depressed for many months because I finally realized, oh, fame doesn't fix, fix any of this. But Oprah, it was actually like a relief because then I could just enjoy being creative. I was like, you don't have to be the best. You don't have to be number one. You could be number 35,000. And it gave me, it made me enjoy um, life as an actress more and being creative, not having to be, because it wasn't going to bring her back. So then I could finally grieve her as an adult. Isn't it amazing how everybody thinks if you're just famous, it will fix everything. Yeah. And it fixes, yeah. fixes nothing. Actually, it puts yeah. a magnifying glass on everything that's actually there. 
Exactly. Yes. So true. You write about a time before you were famous. I thought this was such a big indication of who you are as a human being. You were doing a show in Los Angeles, hoping for agents to come and, and, and actually discover you. And you write, if people couldn't afford to buy a ticket, I would pay for their ticket. I was really into creative visualization. I thought someday the money's going to come back to me. And I believed if I put it out, it would come back to me tenfold. Well, I, I learned that too. I know this to be true. It's actually Newton's third law of motion. How did you come to realize that this was how the world works? I didn't know for sure, but I really love that book by Shakti Goyen, Creative Visualization. And I would sit yeah. and do the exercises and write stuff as if it was in the present. And some of it, sometimes it felt embarrassing, but I would go sit in a beautiful park and spend, you know, an hour or two writing stuff in the present. And I, I, I wrote, I am on Saturday Night Live. I am making people laugh. I, I wrote, I have journals where I wrote that way before it happened. And, um... I wrote about becoming a mother. I, I, I wrote about a good relationship. I really wanted to have a boyfriend. So I just practiced it and I had a good spiritual philosophy and I really did feel like, you know what, if somebody can't afford the ticket, I'm gonna pay for it and that money is gonna come back to me. And it, it worked, that worked. And you were always so open because your father was also open to meeting diverse groups of people. I mean, I love the fact that you would tell everybody, come see my show, and that even homeless people on the street would take a bus to come mm -hmm. to see your show. And they would end up with the show going, Molly, Mo toothless homeless people, you say in the book, would come and say, Molly sent us. Molly told us to come see the show. Yes. I wanted the show to be for everybody and represent the city of Los Angeles, the big metropolitan city. And, and I wanted them to be able to, homeless people to come see the show. I also invited my dentist because I was always <laughs> It always felt better if your dentist was there because you were one of those people that like projecting something's going to happen. I'm going to need a root canal. So if my dentist is here, I'm going to feel better. I mean, wow. <laughs> It's crazy. I, I've, I've grown since then. But at the time I was like, I would be driving on the 10 freeway with wigs in my backseat on my way to do a show inviting 200 people. And I would be nervous, like is something bad going to happen, you know, because yeah. it's too good right now. Yeah, it's too good right now. Well, getting Saturday Night Live changed your life uh, as it does for everybody, almost, I would imagine. And I really liked that you wrote how you were very aware and appreciative of every second that you were there. And you wrote such touching things about Lauren Michaels and the relationship he and producer uh, uh, Marcy Klein fostered with your father. It seems to me that you were born to be on Saturday Night Live. Like your whole life was just leading you to making millions of people laugh and empathize with your characters. Yes. I was in in LA auditioning for sitcoms to play the best friend. And I, I had a hard time. I couldn't get arrested. But that struggle ended up being a real benefit because I wind up having to create original material because I couldn't get cast as the best friend on these TV shows. I wasn't getting cast, but it forced me to create my own stage show, make up my own characters, write my own material. It was much harder. It was a harder path. But then I got on Saturday Night Live, which was the right thing for me, for the type of performer that I am. Mm -hmm. And Lauren Michaels, he runs his own ship. He doesn't care what Hollywood does or what Hollywood thinks. He just does his own thing. He doesn't. And, and that's what I love about Lauren. He really has his own island of picking who he wants. He doesn't really care about that, what Hollywood people think. He, I, I mean, I don't know. He, 
with comedy people, he casts just whoever whoever he wants, and he has really good instincts. And we are still very close. We just had dinner. I adore Lorne, and uh, we have a great relationship. And I just have so much respect for him. And he actually said a really interesting thing at dinner recently, where he was like, "You know, laughter can be dangerous." And I was like, "Yeah." So we had he just he's so insightful and bright, and he gave me the break of my life. I'm so grateful to Lorne. And during your years there, you had to do a lot of impressions of famous people. I remember the Monica Lewinsky years. We all do during the height of that scandal. But you write that you never wanted to make fun of anybody. So how did you thread that needle? I think that's so profound. I just didn't, I wouldn't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I feel like sometimes people think they're people. So I, I don't, I did not want to ever hurt anybody. And um, when there's something big in the news going on. Lauren will decide who's going to play who. Okay, Molly, you're going to play Monica. So that's a big appointment to get. I was excited that Lauren chose me to play Monica Lewinsky and John Goodman was going to play Linda Tripp. It was a big deal. You get That means you get written for too. So I just tried to do an accurate uh, impression of what I thought. You know, she seemed like a girl who was really in love, in love and really kind of obsessing about this guy. And I, I think she was thrown under the bus before me too. I feel like Absolutely. Hillary was too. And I just, I don't know. I have And so I also much- often think of myself, oh my God, this is why uh, Gail and I used to say this. I said, look, if the, if the president of the United States had given me leaves of grass, I'm here for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. But- That's it. Except, wouldn't you be? Are you kidding me? You are giving me a personal copy of leaves of grass and telling me how important it is. It's over. Exactly. You can completely understand how she felt, you know? Yeah. What is amazing is that you were able to leave Saturday Night Live because you wanted to to pursue a personal life. And I love what you write about. You wanted a good ending. Mm -hmm. I only knew awful, abrupt endings because of my childhood, because I treasured and loved my time at SNL. I really yearned for a good ending. I think people always remember how things end. It's why... You know, after 25 years, I wanted to bring the Oprah show to a close because I did not want one moment where people were saying, you know what? She should have quit that show two years ago, you know? Exactly. So you do it when you love it. It's like, right? And look, look, look at you. You know, you are what No, you look do. at us. Look at us, Molly. Look, look at us. Oh, that's so sweet. Look at us. Number <laughs> two on the bestsellers list. Look at us. So exciting. Um, but yeah, I did I did want to do it because I respected Lauren and the show so much. I feel like people stay too long and they're phoning it in and I was like, I love this job. I could have I could freeze myself right there. I when people said oh SNL's a stepping stone, I was like, a stepping stone. This is like the island I want to camp for life. This this might be the greatest ever. And Lauren appreciated that I had that that philosophy. The live variety is just this unique one of a kind thing. It's true, there's nothing like it. But I did I felt like I'd been working my whole life. I wanted to just go out for coffee with my friends. And I wanted to, I had met my husband. I wanted to just spend time dating. I just wanted to enjoy my life. You know, I feel like you can work really hard, but then you need to enjoy what you've done. Otherwise, what's the point? Yes. You know what? I love that you write this on page 120. You said, I've seen people who are superstar movie stars who still feel like they're only as good as their last movie and they're full of fear and insecurity. And I think, wait a minute, you're scared. Well, in that case, I better just enjoy where I am because if you're scared, then we're all. 
exactly. that's a life-changing realization yeah and there can be such a kind of it is a life-changing realization and there can be such a thing where you're just constantly never feeling enough buying into the fear in the town and it's just like, I just don't want to live that way. I feel like it's like a, a brain pattern that I'm like, no, I want to go over here toward the love and I want to be happy with where I am. And I don't think there's some perfect life that somebody's living that I'm not living. I just don't believe that. I feel like you have to embrace your own life and where you are. And so I do think that there's such a feeling that you're in Hollywood where you can always feel like you're not measuring up. And it's just, it's ridiculous. I get like, I'm a woman, I'm alive, I measure up. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I've always admired your talent and you've always made me laugh. But when I finished this book, I felt like, God, I wish I was her friend. Oh, that's so sweet. Can we just be friends? My oh gosh. My gosh. Really? Well, Oprah, what you've given the world is you are the world's therapist. You have done so much, and I'm I'm such a super fan. So this is just like uh, I'm trying to keep my feet on the ground and breathe. And I, it's such an honor for me to speak to you. Why was it? Why was this the right time? I know that you 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 were blessed to be with your dad while he was dying, and you had multiple revelations there, and you found something your dad had written on a yellow legal pad about God is love, God is love. What what brought you to the point where you felt like now is the time to release your memoir into the world? Well, my husband was very encouraging, but it wasn't like I had people saying, oh, please, can you, knocking down my door, please, can you write a book? No. <laughs> I I kind of rallied myself, and I felt like, I felt embarrassed. I felt like nobody's going to care about this. this is so stupid. Nobody's going to care about this. It felt embarrassing. But then I thought, just do it. Be brave and walk through your fear and just tell your story, share your story and do it. And um, I wanted my children to be proud and I wanted to hopefully inspire people and of course make people laugh. So I just wanted to be brave. I feel like the more women that can tell their stories, the better. You know, I read a lot of scripts and I'm reading these female parts. And so I think I was like, I should tell my story. But I was scared. Mm. Well, I think you accomplished everything you intended. You have made yourself proud. I know your children are going to be proud and see a a side of you that they didn't know that existed with their mom whenever they can read this book. And I know your, your father is most, most proud of what you have offered the world through sharing his story in Hello, Molly. (laughs) Thank you, Molly Shannon. Uh, It's fun that you have a a title you can sing. (laughs) Thank you so much, Molly. Thank you, Oprah. What an honor for me. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a great joy to be able to speak to you today. Thank you. Such, such, so nice to be able to spend time with you. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Oprah. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.